Hey everyone, this is Noah Dunham signing on. I'm one of the co-hosts of this new podcast. Just wanted to say thank you for listening. We recorded this podcast live on April 10th, 2016, and we're thrilled to bring it to the audience at Action Adventure Theater. And now we're really happy to be finally releasing it out to you, people of the internet. If you like what you hear, pass it on to friends and family and hell, even strangers. We're planning on doing more shows like this soon, so stay tuned. Just a small language advisory here. There is some adult language and kind of sort of adult content in this podcast, so beware of that if you have wee ones nearby you. But I think that's it. We appreciate you listening. Please enjoy our fires, stories, and songs inspired by the Tillamook Burn. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Action Adventure Theater, and welcome to Our Fires, a new podcast exploring regional history through storytelling and songwriting. We're coming to you live tonight from Portland, Oregon. What you just heard was music from Matt Harmon, Callie Jurita, and Ryan Soley, who have written a ton of original music specifically for tonight, specifically for this podcast, and you'll be hearing more from them soon. I'm Noah Dunham, and this is... Jade Hobbs, and I will also be one of your hosts tonight. Hosts or guides... I feel like we're more like guides tonight. You think we're more like guides, not hosts? Yeah, I mean, we're hosts in the sense that we're hospitable and approachable and eager to please. This is true. This Um, is true. But I'd say we're more like guides, you know, in the way that we're going to be leading both our live audience and the listeners at home through the facts and evidence of a large historical event. Yeah, I get you. Okay, so uh, we're like guides. I'll I'll, I'll buy it. Yeah. Yeah, we're like forest guides. Like... (laughs) Like forest fire guides. Wait, 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 not so quick with the forest fire stuff, Jade. Um, no, we're doing a show about a forest fire, so I don't think we really gave that away. Yeah, but I was hoping to make the whole like forest fire thing more of a slow burn. <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. I, th- let that be the last fire pun that I exclaimed tonight. I will try not to supply you with any more Tinder. <laughs> Two-way street. Two-way street. <laughs> okay. Noah, would you like to tell everyone how this show came to be? Sure, yes. Uh, so when I originally thought about doing a project about the Tillamook Burn, I thought it was going to be more like a theater piece. And yeah, we're in a theater, and some of this might come off as pretty theatrical throughout the evening. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more I wanted to go back to my original experience of the Tillamook Burn. Like, you know, I wasn't there but I have a memory that's like pretty implanted in my mind, and I wanted to go back to the source material. Uh, so basically, when I first heard about the Tillamook Burn, I was a student leader at Oregon's outdoor school program. Have you heard of that, Jade? Yes, but, uh, <laughs> but you want not me to everyone explain? else has. <laughs> I'm sure some of the other people in the house tonight have heard of the outdoor school program, where it's this really cool thing where sixth graders get to take a break from the classroom for a week and be out in nature and they go to a camp and they learn about the environment and the, and the conserv- like conservation and this person has done this. <laughs> so that's cool. We got people who have probably intended outdoor school. Anyway, so I went to Camp Numanu, which was this really cool camp out off of Highway 26 near Sandy, Oregon. Beautiful camp. And when I was a student leader, a high school student leader, uh, we had a program director and his name was Walrus. Walrus? Yeah, his name was Walrus. Well, that wasn't his real name. Do you know about this? Do you guys know about this? That like I know camp about names? It. You know about this? Yeah, it used to be Calamari. 
Your name was Calamari yeah. at camp? Because your name's Callie. Calamari. Yeah, okay. My, my camp name was Ark. Noah and, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was really clever in high school. Uh, it, but the kids that I was like teaching, because the student leaders also teach at outdoor school, uh, I, they all, they, they couldn't pick up on it. They were like, Ark, oh, your name's Shannon, I bet. I'm like, where's the correlation with that? They all were convinced. Like the last day, they were like, we, we guessed your name, we have it. Oh yeah, what is it? Shannon. No, it's Noah. Noah's Ark. They're like, oh man, we're dumb sixth graders. They didn't actually say that, and that's mean. Sixth graders are very smart. Anyways, I am digressing now. Uh, so Walrus, let's get back to Walrus. Walrus, fun fact, his real name is Andy Lindbergh, and he played the role of Lardass Hogan in 1986's, oh, look at the, look at the faces of, of recognition. Lardass Hogan in 1986's Stand By Me, which is like one of my favorite childhood films. It's the films, best movie. Filmed here in Oregon. And so I was already in awe of this guy, right? He was a local actor, I knew that. And then he also was Walrus, this program director. And my awe continued even more so, right, when he uh, told the story of the Tillamook Burn. This was his big thing. At the end of the week, uh, after every outdoor school session, he would tell the entire story of the Tillamook Burn in front of a campfire just by himself, this epic tale, and everyone was just like starstruck by it. Sixth graders have never been so quiet, right? <laughs> and it was the first time that I had heard about the fire at all. Like, and I'm a Portland native. Like, I'm born in Oregon, and I'd never heard of this huge forest fire before. Uh, and I'm pretty sure a lot of us up here hadn't even heard of this forest fire before we started this project, right? I hadn't. Never. No. No. Nope. No. What about, show of hands before you heard about this podcast, who had heard of it? Oh, like a lot of, a lot of people. That's good. <laughs> I think they might be more educated than us. Or they Googled it when they saw the event. Yeah, they could have they done some Wikipedia research, perhaps. Uh, but, you know, I thought, wow, what a cool piece of Oregon history. Um, I'd like to explore it more. And so I wanted to go back to my original memory of hearing about it. And so I was like, well, let's tell a story. Let's tell the story and kind of like make it fresh and new and modern. Let's bring in some awesome local musicians and let's bring in some awesome local writers and see what happens. Great. So a podcast. Um, no, what can we expect from tonight? Uh, I think you should talk for a little while, Jay. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, okay, so we want to let you know about the format tonight. So um, what you're going to be hearing is a story of a major forest fire in Oregon history. So, and in fact, it was the largest conflagration in all of North America at that time. And you'll be hearing this tale through oral storytelling, but also through original music as provided by Matt Callen Ryan. And also you'll be hearing the work of several Portland artists who have submitted brand new work just for tonight. So it's part history lesson, super good, and then part listening party, extra super good. I think we have explained the shit out of this, Jade. Uh, I'd say so. Let's get on with it. Friends, have you heard of the Tillamook Burn? From this old house I can see raging evergreen Never to be green again Fried and I try to be brave But the fear is away Will the wind breathe my end? Hit a hundred and four A drive for us before a 
year is 1933, and America was officially in what would come to be known as the Great Depression. The place is Oregon, specifically the Northern Coast Range region, where much of Oregon's logging industry held camps. Oregon was not a state that was exempt from the hard times of the Depression. Like much of America, the failing national banks caused widespread foreclosures on properties, farms, and homes. Money and jobs were at this time scarce, and so anything that anyone could do to keep the production line running, you'd better believe that they were doing it. The exact date is August 14th, 1933. The summer thus far has been a hot one. At sunup on this day, accounts noted that it had opened up dry, a kind of high heat that appears at sunrise and lingers long into the boiling afternoon. July and August have seen many days like this. On top of this, the spring of 1933 had seen little rain. In the western part of Oregon, there had been zero rainfall reported in April or May, leaving many of Oregon's forests tender dry. Specifically, the Tillamook Forest had been marked as high probability for forest fire for most of the summer. A forest that contained Oregon's oldest collection of Douglas fir trees, ancient old growth timber that stood hundreds of feet tall, still growing into their 400th year. The density at which these trees grew, lining up side by side, was so thick that in the forest's deeper areas, it was said that almost no sunlight could pierce through. Locals who knew the forest well could confirm that walking through it felt like walking through a living cathedral. With humidity reaching uncanny lows. 20% on August 14th. A call had gone out from Governor Julius Meyer that all state forests be closed in southern and eastern Oregon. At this time, the governor's office was actively pleading with the loggers on private land in the northwest to shut down activities. On August 14th, a runner is dispatched and arrives at the Gales Creek Logging Company at noon. Huffing and puffing, he delivers the message, shut down or you're going to have a fire on your hands. The crews pause. The foreman, or bull buck in logging terms, looks at a lone Douglas fir recently cut down, ready to be snaked through the underbrush to be loaded and processed. One more comes the call. The whistle blows. The mainline cables snapped into the enormous tree pull taut. The log rears and thrashes through the brush, scraping over the dry bark of a downed cedar on the forest floor. Fuel for a spark. Fuel for a fire that has the potential to burn more than 200,000 acres of woodland habitation. A trickle of smoke points the men to the first sign of flame, and then a brief hot flash of ignition. Fire. Fire comes the call that can be heard throughout the glen. Bring axes and shovels. The down cedar snag becomes a torch, billowing out burning moss and dry bits of bark that are carried on the dry August wind into deeper regions of the dried out forest. The men fight furiously, but it becomes apparent in a matter of minutes that the fire would break outside of any manner of human control. And now we pause. Briefly pause to bring on our first guest of the night. Avery Gilbert. Avery Gilbert. Let's warm it up for him. So Avery is going to be singing an original piece based off of the beginning of the fire.
fur came against the tribe The windfallen cry And the rain, it missed the pine While the flame, it crossed the line First flame again, again, and a first flame again, again, and a first flame again, 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 again. Log man, he logged and lied. So the flame, it flocked and flied. No one claimed to be the guy to make a mistake where others died. First flame again, again, and a first flame again, again, and a first flame again, again, and again, again, and again. Avery Gilbert. Yay! Thank you so much. That was wonderful. So have you heard of the Tillamook Burn before this podcast? I had not. Okay, me either. Great. Uh, you're, you're in good company. Um, what was exactly, what excited your song? You know what? Um, after I did research on the burn, I instantly thought, okay, well, I want to make a complex song for such a complex history. But then I thought, wait a minute, like, I just decided to go very stripped down and just try to draw from my country blues roots. And so I did that and just tried to follow a basic melody with my voice. And that's how I came up with that song, just by stripping down and trying not to overcomplicate the situation. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Avery, how can people hear more about you? How can they look you up? Um, right now, I just have a SoundCloud and a Bandcamp. Hopefully, that changes over time. Um, and then I also have videos on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, a name they can look you under besides Avery? Mm -hmm. A-D-O-S. Oh, cup, cup, cup drop. No. A-D-O-S. Um. A-D-O-S 33. Thank you, Thank you Avery. Avery. Let's give him another round of applause. Okay, so let's check back in on our story, shall we? The fire has begun. In fact, it has spread. Ten miles southeast of the initial flame, the Saddle Mountain Firewatch has spotted the smoke. The lookout calling into their Forest Grove headquarters. Fire. Fire in Gales Creek Canyon. Firefighting crews are almost immediately dispatched, but in 1933, no fire roads were yet built in these parts. There are few ways for trucks to bring in men and more equipment. There aren't airplanes to drop smoke jumpers into the fray. There isn't a quick way to begin the concerted effort against this fire which means it's going to get much worse before it gets any better. 
All right, everyone, we're going to welcome Karen Green to the stage. Another guest. All right. Uh, this is called One More. I hate that phrase, one more. Ever since the fire, it gives me chills to hear it. It makes my heart jump. I'm sure it sounds harmless to most people, innocuous, as Andy would have said. To hear him talk, you'd think he went to college, but he never did. He got a job at the logging company a few weeks after we were married, just like his dad and all his brothers before him. I remember it was hot as soon as the sun came up that day. I was at our house in Forest Grove, this tiny little place with loose floorboards and a dusty front yard. It must have been a Monday, because Mondays were washing days, and I'd been up early scrubbing linens on the front porch. Beads of sweat kept dripping from my nose into the wash basin. I never took to housework much, but I especially hated laundry. All that scrubbing just so things could get dirty again in a heartbeat. Andy was late getting home that night. His eyes looked redder than I'd ever seen, tired and somehow far away. His boots were black with soot, and the brim of his hat was soaked through like a sponge. He didn't want dinner or shower. He just sat down at the table and shook his head. He said all day he and the men had wanted to stop. They kept looking around for a runner to arrive with word from the governor's office. And then finally at noon, they saw this young guy come huffing through the woods, panting. Hunched over, he tells the crew boss it's time to stop, that it's too dangerous. I never liked Andy's boss. He rubbed up against me once in line for the post office and acted like it was an accident. I swear I saw him wink at me when I left. He'd been a logger his whole life. There's not a chance he didn't know the dangers out there on a day like that, when any stray movement can cause everything around you to disintegrate. It's such a delicate thing in this world. I don't know how men forget it so easily. But that man just looked around. Instead of seeing a powder keg, I guess he saw a quota. He saw a profit or a bottom line. He says, one more. Just one more is all it took for everything to be gone so fast that an army of men could never hope to save it. Andy really loved those woods. He wrote poetry about the forest, about the streams and mossy ground. He never told another living soul about that. He only ever showed me two poems after I wouldn't let up about it. But he filled whole notebooks with odes to rocks and birds and things. He was sensitive, really. Not many people knew that about him. No one had use for a sensitive poet type back then. Everyone just trying to scrape by. But he did love the woods. Something broke inside him when he saw all those acres charred and desolate. He never could go back. He looked for work in town, but there was nothing around there that didn't have to do with chopping down trees or digging through the ashes. And after a few months, he just gave up. He started staying out late drinking with the other men looking for work, and then he brought the drinking home with him. He keeps saying he was going to have one more. One more became so many that he would pass out cold, and I was powerless to move him. Thank goodness Lily was just little then. She doesn't remember a thing about those days. One morning I came into the kitchen and he was face down on the table with a lit cigarette still in his mouth. A black circle was eating its way through the white lace tablecloth. I didn't say a thing. I just threw a pot of cold water on his face and that sure woke him up. I told him if he did that just one more time that Lily and I were leaving and I meant it. Two weeks later, nothing had changed. I came home from the grocery store and he'd left a burner lit on the stove while trying to make coffee. The water pot was bone dry and singed black all along the bottom. The kitchen was filled with smoke and Andy was just snoring on the couch. One more chance, he said, when he saw me packing my bags. He begged me. Before I left, I told him I wasn't going to let him burn down the family, too. 
It's the only part I wish I could take back. His face twisted in such an awful way when I said it. I don't regret the leaving, though. Lily and I moved in with my brother in Portland, and I got a job at the laundry at a hotel downtown. I hated the work, but I joked that it was just as well, because I always wanted to be near water from then on. I thought about Andy a lot, every day. But I didn't know how to find him, and I knew it was probably best. Three years went by, and on a sunny day, just when the daffodils were starting to bloom on our street, I got a letter from a lumber company all the way in Maine saying that he'd been involved in an accident. They sent me his journals and the wedding ring that I guess he never took off. The letter didn't say much, but I heard he'd stepped the wrong way when felling a tree, as if that isn't the first thing they teach you in the woods, how to get the hell out of the way. Maybe he thought he could handle one more drink that day or that one more tree wouldn't do any harm. Maybe he never learned his lesson, even after all that. It's useless to think back about that day in August when the fire started, and so many years ago. But I always wonder why they didn't just walk away, put down their saws, come home to their wives, wait for the heat to pass. It was desperate times then, I understand. When is it not? It just makes me wish that people could say no sometimes, no more. Karen Green, everyone. Karen Green. Thank you so much, Karen. We should also point out that that backing track that you were hearing as Karen was reading was done by a local music musician, Brian Park, who's in the house tonight. Brian, where are you at? Hey. Thanks for that, Brian. And thank you, Karen, for that awesome story. Um, will you tell us a little bit about, you know, what got that started for you? What got the ball rolling, you know, trying to, uh, write something for this piece? Yeah. Um, I had never heard about the Tillamook burn before, but I read a lot of the research, uh, that you sent and didn't have a ton of, uh, you know, a ton of experience with logging or forest fires or being alive in the 1930s, but I could, <laughs> I, I could kind of think about like, what was the impact of this fire, uh, to the larger community and kind of the the economic uh, fallout and the emotional fallout of something like that, especially in a a time you know when times were kind of desperate during the depression, and I'm sure it was already easy to lose hope at a time like that. I really the one of the things that sticks out to me um, from your story is that you kind of seem to really capture the time period. Um, is that something that just came naturally, or were you having to do like additional research at all? Uh, I think it came naturally, and I probably have to thank uh, Ken Burns' Prohibition documentary because <laughs> that's probably where I got a lot of inspiration. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, Karen, uh, how can people hear more about you, look you up? Uh, you can go to my website, KarenRoseGreen.com, and read some more stories. And yeah. Great. Thank Thanks you. you so much, Karen. <laughs> Let's check back in on the fire, shall we? It is now 24 hours later, and August 15th is reporting a hotter, drier day than the previous. from sky to the sea. 
Fighting the fire throughout the night are relieved by incoming crews from Forest Grove. The optimism of replenished vigor doesn't last long, however, as it becomes apparent the fire will crown. Despite the men's efforts, the flames have now reached the very tops of the Douglas fir trees, where the wind catches flames and burning branches and carries them further south. By late afternoon, it is being reported that a burning treetop has made it on the wind 15 miles south and begins a second fire near the Wilson River. The firefighting effort is now split with men battling two simultaneous burns. It is safe to think that the exhaustion these crews face is not only physical, but also of the soul. Okay, so fun fact. On this stifling August day, the Southern Pacific Railroad runs an ad in the Oregonian featuring its Sunbreak Special. An excursion from Portland through the coast range to the Tillamook beaches and return all for $1.90. We jump forward 10 days. The men have fought for 10 days straight without respite, digging fire breaks. Large trenches to cut the flames off for more fuel. Only to watch the burn swallow them up, forcing the men to spread the line backward, dig more breaks, and watch them again engulfed. By August 23rd, the fire had spread to 40,000 acres big enough to surround the circumference of Mount Rainier. The 11th day, August 24th, is again hot and dry. A dreaded new east wind is surging in and the humidity dives to amazing lows. The fire blows up. A wall of flame blasts into a patch of old growth 250 feet tall, grabbing on and climbing to the crowns, roaring past the treetops and consumes 166 acres every minute, almost three acres per second. The incredible heat cracks the very ground beneath it and causes the air to explode above it. This creates a vacuum that uproots trees, pulling them root and all like they are merely weeds in a garden. A cloud 40 miles wide mushrooms into the sky. The skies are darkened by the smoke. People in Yellowstone National Park can see it. Ashes and charred fir needles rain into towns, farms, even beaches. It is said that ash from this explosion was raining into the decks of ships 500 miles at sea. 3,000 firefighters are in awe of this thing that now seems completely unbreakable. They wonder if the killing will ever stop. Faster than we go, get on under that mountain. I get lost along the way. Breaking down slowly with no shelter.
Brian Soli, everyone. Yeah. That one had some heat. But is that kind of a pun. My kind of God. Pun. Yeah, super hot. Uh, Ryan, why don't you come up to this uh, microphone? Because we want to interview you now. So Ryan is part of the awesome house band here, which we still don't have a name for our house band. We, we should take a poll after the show. Yeah, we've been brainstorming. We were thinking, uh, what, the Ca- Cal and the Axemen? Or Burn Unit. <laughs> no? I just thought of that right now. Just now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, so this is Ryan and Sol- Ryan, Ryan and Soli? Ryan yeah. Soli. Uh, and Ryan is an awesome local songwriter. He plays in bands like Albatross and Builders and Butchers. Uh, Ryan wrote that song that you just heard. Yep. And uh, Ryan, how did you come up with that? That's, uh, it's weird that uh, you even had me on this whole project because basically the whole new Builders and Butchers record is all about fire very randomly. So I feel like the cosmic things were happening there. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. But uh, we, I, it's, when you're on the road and driving through the United States, you see a lot of random fires. And we've driven uh, through Arizona and New Mexico a lot of times where there's fire on both sides of the highway, and it's really intense. And so it kind of has good song fodder. Yeah. Wow. Is that what that song is about? Is I think so. Kind of thing? Maybe, yeah. 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 I don't know where the song is. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea where these things come from. No, nobody knows. They just fly <laughs> through the air. But I think that's probably part of it. Okay. That's an intense yeah. experience. Was that like the closest you have gotten to I like think, a really intense, yeah, out-of-control fire? I think so. I grew up in Alaska, and so um, every year, the interior of Alaska just burns out of control, but nobody lives there, so it's not like a big deal, but it's just part of the, the annual thing. So but are those controlled burdens, though? Or are those... No, no they just okay. burn. Yeah, um, but but anybody near them, you know, gets the gets kind of the brunt, and it sucks because it's really cold, and then everything's on fire. So that's why they pay you to live there. <laughs> uh, Ryan, how should people look you up? How, how um, should people know Just the builders and the you? butchers or Albatross on the Googles. On the Googles, yeah. And you have a new uh, builders. Yeah, the new builders record uh, we're working on right now. So yeah, cool. yeah. Well, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. It should be noted that on the 24th of August, the day that the fire literally exploded, is when it also claims its one and only human life. Frank Palmer, a Civilian Conservation Corps tree ranger from Marseille, Illinois, is crushed by an uprooted tree, pulled out of the ground and flung into the air by the fire's hurricane. That's really scary stuff. Yeah, it's terrifying. Um, we have our guest, Michael Mount, who is another writer here who's going to share some work with us. Let's give it up for Michael. Dr. Ira was the wealthiest man in Tillamook because he was the veterinarian, and there were a great many animals in Tillamook, more animals than humans, in fact. And he reaped capital from the broken back residents of the small town who brought him their ailing horses and their bloated dogs. Ira had money, and he had affairs, and he had just bought a new Ford, but he was, overall, a hateful man because he had been in this town too long. He had come from Pennsylvania 20 years ago to capitalize on a ludicrous invention called a refrigerator, but his investment partner was impatient and sold the patent rights to a competitor and left Ira in Oregon with no money. 
Ira was a graduate of Princeton, and he resented himself for having lost all this money, and he resented himself for having moved west, and for having made a young girl pregnant. He did, however, have a veterinary degree. He began a business in town which quickly flourished, and he bought more property, and he reigned as a Vanderbilt amongst loggers. He would talk about how a man could always make his living on a veterinary degree if he had to, and he drank too much, and he sampled too many of the tranquilizers that he gave to the horses and bulls. He cultivated affairs with farm girls who would let him touch them in exchange for a hit of halpeterol or laudanum or morphine or other such opiate. He lived a good but horrible life, treating all his associates like animals. But in the summer of 1933, the forest around Tillamook caught on fire, and Dr. Ira did not drive his Ford much, and many of the young girls he had affairs with left town. The forest burned one acre at a time, and then 10 acres at a time, and then entire square miles at a time, and for weeks it burned and consumed itself, and the eyes of the nation were on Tillamook. The remaining residents of the town would dutifully watch the topaz-colored columns of smoke, listening to the half-hallucinatory sound of trees sighing, punctuated by the thunderous cracks as they popped like overloaded transistors. The heat was so oppressive and so vacuous that the dogs yelped and ran wild. Dr. Ira ran his finger down his sweating forehead and it was coated in ash. And from his grand mansion, the blaze was visible. He would stand at the garrison and look at the copper skies and the blotted sun, which had no more power than a dim ornament in the residing darkness. His veterinary pin was attached to the first floor of his house, but there were no animals in it anymore because they had run away. They had all gone berserk because of the magnetism in the air. It started when the lazy bull had pummeled its way through the wooden gate. Dr. I had been meaning to reinforce the gate for a while. There is a young girl named Dorothy who is now lying naked in Dr. Ira's large bathtub. She is small enough to fit in the bathtub without compressing her legs, and only her chest and her collarbones and her head are above the water. She reaches for the morphine dropper beside the bathtub, and she applies it to her tongue. Dr. Ira, staring into the mirror, buttons his collar, and then he smokes. How can you smoke a cigarette in this heat, Dorothy asks. Get dressed, he says. You have to get out of here. That morphine has a nice drip, she says. It makes me feel light. I told you to get dressed, he says. I just got a call. What are you worried about anyway, she asks, smiling with her small, sharp teeth. This whole town's going to burn. Not going to be anyone left to care about your appointments. I have an appointment right now, he says. This town's not going to burn. Come on, she says, rising higher above the water. Can't you even acknowledge me? I'm married, he says, looking her in the eyes for the first time, trying not to concentrate on her raw, hairless skin. Oh, hell, she says. You know I didn't get any sleep last night? He pulls the bathtub drain and the water begins to rush out. She reaches to push the drain back into place, but he slaps her hand away. She tears at his hands. He shoves her head into the porcelain wall and it rebounds like a ball. Hell, she says, you probably think everyone is just here to serve you. You're high, he says. You've taken too much. He reaches for the morphine, but she snatches it and puts it between her legs. He stops pursuing her, just smiles, and throws his cigarette into the receding bathwater. Dorothy is bleeding out of the back of her head, but she cannot feel it. She looks into the water and sees the red tentacles around her torso, and then she touches the shallow cut in the back of her head. You're all the same, Dr. Iris says, sitting on the rim of the bathtub. Just want to be numb, don't you? Well, let me tell you something. You think you're beautiful, but you're not. In five years, you're going to have a child, and then you're going to be like everyone else. You think you're experienced because you went to that party on the coast, but let me tell you, you have no idea. In San Francisco, they have girls doing that every day, hundreds and thousands of girls who are going to bigger parties. You go down to California and you'll starve, trust me. It's better you hear it from me than anyone else. And here, put this on your head. She sits in the bathtub, watching the pink water go through the hole. Come on, he says, standing up. Get out. I have an appointment. 
I thought all the animals ran away, she says. They did, but I have to make a house call, he says. Have to go see about pulling something out of a horse's pussy. What would that be, she asks. Hopefully a baby horse, he says, laughing to himself. And then she puts her uniform back on and it clings to her wet skin. He closes the door of his house behind her and she stands in the driveway, sopping wet, watching the sky billow like a black ocean. She walks down the steep driveway, clutching the morphine dropper in the pocket of her white linen. The fire has been burning for three weeks now, and many residents of Tillamook have already gone to relatives in Portland or taken sanctuary on the coast. But there is also that feeling that perhaps there is no sanctuary, nowhere to run, and that even if one runs, perhaps one is running into the fire. But Dorothy shakes her head and banishes that thought. Dorothy is not the wealthiest person in Tillamook, and she's not the oldest either. She didn't migrate from the east, and she has no degree, and she was never involved in any ludicrous venture involving refrigeration. Her last name is the same as that of many other folks in Tillamook, and she has a fine taste for laudanum, which she developed primarily from within Dr. Ira's bathtub, though now she has become much more partial to morphine. The gravity of the opiate and the gravity of the smoke are particularly oppressive today, and she slouches into work with her hand still braced against the back of her head. The diner is nearly empty. The coffee tastes ashen, and the eggs are gritty. There is one old man named Eustace sitting by himself who has come in every afternoon since the beginning of Dorothy's career. He eats with his hat on the table and he rakes the tines of his fork through the eggs and potatoes and the little vegetables. Have a seat, honey, he says. I have to work, she says, smiling. I can't afford to sit. Ain't no one in here but me, he says. Have a seat and keep me company. Up close, she realizes why he doesn't smile that often. There are gaps in his mouth and he has yellow canines. You look wet, he says. I'm sweating. She pours herself coffee and she spills some. Her fingers are like arachnids. Eustace puts his hand on top of hers. Outside of the diner, dogs are howling. There is a pocking against the windows because the bees have trouble flying right. I'm not afraid, Eustace says. In Exodus, it says that the Lord led them by a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he took away not the pillar of smoke by day or the pillar of fire by night. Hell, she says, I'm going to California. Good girls don't use that language, he says. Did you hear about what's happening in Germany? Got a new political party called the Nazis. They look like they're really going to put Germany back on the map. You know that a German coin is only worth one one-thousandth of a dollar? No, she says. She laughs and cannot help but thinking that Eustace should get further on into the fire too. So should Oregon, and so should Germany. She smiles and pours in more coffee. She has poured coffee for every old man in this town. She goes on her break and stands outside on the crown of the hill behind the restaurant and smokes a cigarette, which burns very fast. She drags on it while watching the pearly gray clouds and the smoke. She looks away and then the sky tears apart into diagonal branches of lightning and a great crack rips through the hot, hollow air. She drops her cigarette. For one moment, she is held in reverie. All the fires become one enormous inferno, belching smoke and flame up into the heavens. The men and women run out of the squat buildings of downtown and congregate on the hill, shielding their brows from the raining ash. She even sees her mother standing on the hill, pointing to the peals of smoke. The hill is very crowded. Eustace walks up to her and puts his hand on her shoulder. What's that look like, he says, pointing to the towering black cloud. A mushroom, she says, a giant mushroom. I was thinking it looks like a penis, he says, cackling. The fire is running up against the boundary of the town, and the firemen run like colonies of ants in the forest, scratching out small trenches and ditches to prevent its wrathful spread. Though the men and women are running home and the proselytizers are screaming, she walks forward towards the darkness. The air is hot and oppressive, and she begins to cough, and a hot piece of ash hits her in the forehead, then another one, 
Walking under the influence of morphine is like walking in peanut butter. She stands on the doorstep of the mansion. The fort is gone, perhaps because Dr. Ira is still tending to some horse's pussy. The house is empty. She pours the 100-year bourbon on the floor of the kitchen, and then she lights it on fire. She steps back as the fire looks away all the shadows of the great old house. The tapestries are consumed, and then the furniture. Within minutes, the entire house is aflame, and the turrets shoot upwards like Roman candles. She swallows her last morphine, and she steps into the swimming pool. Its cold water holds up her body, and the raining ash pelts it, hissing. From atop the water, she looks up at the sky again, and she hears his words. The Lord went before them in the day by a pillar of smoke, and by night in a pillar of fire. And he took not away the pillar of smoke by day, or the pillar of fire by night. After the house burns to the ground, she leaves the pool and walks, dripping wet, down the hill again, and down the ashen street again, where the people and the families are congregating, piling their possessions into trucks. She looks down and realizes that she is no longer dripping wet, because the heat has pulled it all away from her body. Michael Mount, everyone. Thank you, Michael. Uh, that was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Michael, can I ask you, um, is that based off of a true story? No. Okay. Um, how That's did when you... I used to deliver horses back in 1933. Oh. No, I'm playing. I'm playing. You're cute. Yeah. Um, is, uh, so how did, you, how did you come up with that? Uh, Noah sent a research packet to all of us, and he sent a poem with it by um, William Stafford, who is the Oregon Poet Laureate of the 1950s. And um, I think the first line of the poem is, uh, these mountains have heard God. And it's basically about the divine influence of the fire, sort of the cleansing effect on the landscape. Um, yeah, and so I wrote about this sort of retribution between a young farm girl and her rich counterpart. And uh, even threw in the little piece about the Nazis, because, you know, in a certain way, it's sort of this, like, attempt or failed attempt at cleansing. Um, but, yeah, it was, a, you know, the most vile story I could come up with, too. It was extremely vile. Yeah. Uh, have you heard about the Tillamook Burn before this podcast? No. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> Michael, how can... Do you have more stories for people um, to read? Or? I don't have, I do have stories. I don't really have any social media, okay. but um, I have a book coming out probably next year. Um, do you have a title? Chaps. Chaps? Yeah, so you should buy it or look for it. By Michael Mount? <laughs> it's, yeah, it'll get auctioned to a publisher late summer, probably. So probably in print by next year. Great. Thank you so much okay, for being thank here. You. This is thank awesome. you, Michael. No, are you are you afraid of fire? Have you ever been near a fire? Uh, I am slightly afraid of fire. I mean, I think everybody is, or you should be, if uh, <laughs> if you're not. But I mean, uh, no, I've never been near like a really big burn. I mean, and some of the inspiration with the piece was, uh, you know, when the smoke last summer was coming into Portland. Uh, it was pretty shocking to me, and it was interesting because, you know, everybody was, like, doing their Instagram posts, like, oh, cool amber light from the smoke, so neat. And I was like, that's neat, but it's terrifying. And, like, you know, in, in my years in Portland, it's the first time I've ever seen anything like that happen. And so then when I was already thinking about the Tillamook burn, I was like, wow, this is kind of actually a lot more topical than I thought it was going to be with the, the fires happening in Oregon and yeah. southern Washington and northern California. 
and that suddenly just seemed like nature was invading a little bit more than maybe we're used to or might like. Um, so, you know, it was fuel for the fire that became this piece. Okay, sorry. Here you go again. Yeah. I'm sorry. I got to stop. Yeah. I got to stop. Uh, it was interesting for me, t specifically at the time that those first fires were happening this last summer, like, you know, President Obama coming on record and, you know, kind of using it as a way of saying, like, yeah. Climate change climate is real. Climate change is real. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know. It's just something to think about. Uh, but something, you know, also to think about is fire is an event, you know. It's a living thing. Um, much like a piece of theater, it has beginning, middle, and end. Um, Jay, do you know how the Tillamook burn ended? Rain. flames of the Tillamook burn began to die down as the winds change and a light fog rolls in from the coast. The fire breaks that the firefighters had dug finally stick. The burn continues to smolder for another 10 days until finally on September 5th, the coveted rain comes. Anyone who is holding their breath for this kind of relief is finally able to exhale. The fire crackles, smolders, steams, and then eventually goes out. The damage was done. And it was rampant. Not only had the fire burned 12 and a half billion board feet of prime timber, the lifeblood of just about everyone in the region, it had also claimed countless souls. The Wilson River Road was said to be littered with the bodies of slain deer that had been overcome by the flames and smoke. Wildlife activists were traumatized. Letters were written to the editors of every major publication that the region should be on high alert to protect animals that had fled to safety from unregulated hunting and poaching. Tillamook County was reporting a serious milk shortage as cows unable to graze were covered by piles of ash three feet deep. From an economic perspective, the burn had claimed over $275 million in timber. 
If cut, it would have kept 14,000 loggers and sawyers working for 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year for the next six years. A shameful, heartbreaking waste is how everyone saw it. Tillamook County was facing bankruptcy. Had it not occurred, the amount of timber burned represented enough wood to keep every sawmill, shingle mill, and pulp mill in the United States open and running for an entire year. Not to mention all of the green things. All of the green things that had now turned completely black. All right, now we're going to welcome Ryan Soley and Michelle Costa. the choir all gather and sing boys let it rain let it rain let it rain I felt the earth and the mud and the clay boys let it rain let it rain let it rain I saw the Lord when I had a dream I hope it never rains, never rains, never rains. I saw a fire in the tops of the trees. I hope it never rains, never rains, never rains. It's a long way home. It's a long way home for a boy who's gone and lost his way and a darker is marking a darker day it's a long way home it's a long way home for a boy who's gone and lost his way and a darker cloud is it's marking a darker day let the fire take this whole town away Hope it never rains, never rains, never rains When we all raise our hands up to pray Oh, let it rain, let it rain, let it rain Will you take this fire away? Oh, let it rain, let it rain, let it rain to say I hope it never rains never rains never rains it's a long way home a long way home for a boy who's gone and lost his way and a darker cloud is oh it's marking a darker day oh it's a long way home it's a long way home for that boy who's gone and lost his way. It's a darker cloud that's, oh, it's marking a darker day. Oh, it's a long way home. It's a long way home for that boy who's gone and lost his way. And a darker cloud is, it's marking a darker day. 
Thank you. Michelle Acosta and Ryan Soli. Yeah. Wow. So, Michelle, I guess you can sing. <laughs> wow. What a song. Um, thanks so much for being part of the show. Um, you and Ryan rehearsed that together, right? And that was one of Ryan's songs that he wrote. How is that, you know, kind of um, taking that and making it for yourself? Yeah, it was kind of cool. Um, I, I'm a songwriter myself, too, so it's really fun to have someone else produce the lyrics and the music and then be able to kind of interpret it in your own way. And uh, I heard Ryan sing it a couple of times, and it was really soulful. And so, it, yeah, it was, it was great to be able to turn it. And I think Ryan has a great way with lyrics in that it's, they're simple but very but complex. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, I mean, but it's, it's interesting watching you perform that because it just seemed like, you know, you were so inside it. Is there something, was there something in the song that you really connected to? Maybe a lyric or, or a piece of it? It's okay to say no. <laughs> <laughs> Pressure. No, I think, um, I mean, I think fire in general is such, like a, it's a really powerful force and it can be so destructive and so useful at the same time. And I think this song sort of touches both of those um, aspects of fire. I'm from Southern California where their fire is like a part of life. And I had to evacuate as a kid a number of times because we lived in a, a valley where there was lots of fire. Where about, whereabouts was that? Um, it was Chino Hills, like in the Chino Valley. Are you from Chino? <laughs> <laughs> Rolling Heights. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's lots of fire there. I mean, it's a desert, and so there's probably not meant to be that many people living in a desert. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a real thing. And something I was thinking about um, with regarding this project is that fire, in a lot of ways, historically in the U.S. has been, or we, we've tried to suppress it for so long. And so there's this fire suppression tactics, which really amp up um, in a way that we've created sort of the environment for the types of fires like Tillamook Burn to be able to do the damage that they do. So in in a very literal way, someone started the fire, but at the same time, we sort of started the fire, like we created the environment for it. Wow, yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. Um, Jay, did you have, you look like you have a burning question. I just want to... No, I didn't even try to do that one. I didn't even try to do that one. I just want to sing, you know, we didn't start the fire. You, know. you were going to start singing that song. Yeah, I was. Okay, yeah. Maybe later. Maybe go. later. Well, Michelle, thanks for singing the hell out of that song. Thanks. And uh, Ryan, thanks for the words. Yes. So what was Oregon to do? What was to be made of this tragedy? It was a controversial perspective, but there are some who wanted to salvage and replant. These efforts would only come in fits and starts, however, because, get this, the Tillamook burn continues. After the initial burn goes out, the forest catches flames three more times, eerily so, in six-year intervals in 1939, 1945, and 1951. There are some who believe that over the course of nearly 20 years, the forest never stopped burning. And to speak a little bit more about these kind of things, we have another special guest, TJ Asena. 
with our last story of the evening. Enjoy. Dear M, I'm sorry for what I said the last time we spoke. I'm not by nature an optimistic man. When you said you imagined a life together, I should not have dismissed it. I am writing to you from a bunkhouse used by the loggers. It is dim and smells of smoke and sweat. The men have quieted down for the evening. We still have work to be done tomorrow. As soon as I arrived, they put an ax in my hand and set me to digging a fire break. It was exhausting in the heat. The soot burned my eyes and I wept while I worked. Silently, I hoped my suffering would somehow alleviate the pain I caused you. A few days later, I was chopping trees when the winds began to howl, a rising noise like a train approaching. A wave of fire 200 feet high surged over the break, arcing above us. I dropped my axe and ran. Everyone ran. I could see the men screaming, but I couldn't hear them. The roar had become an explosion and everything moved in every direction. I ran until someone wrestled me to the ground. He said we were safe, but I knew that we were not. How could men stop something this big and this hungry? They sent us back to make a new break. After that, I did not think about anything but the motion of my axe or shovel as I worked, lest my hands begin to tremble. Then that fog rolled in from the coast. We could not see the smoke, but we could feel it, that peculiar pressure in the air when a storm rolls in. A man in line next to me prayed for rain. And there was this flicker of hope now, and we worked harder. And then it did rain. And the rain did what we could not do, put out the flames. I know you won't believe it, but I prayed in earnest with that man because I actually believed I was in hell. Those of you in the city haven't seen what this fire has done. To you, this is all over. But nothing lives where the fire touched. A lifeless silence has settled in. The hills are black and ashy, and when we walk, the earth stirs under our feet and comes apart. Lush forest is now a haphazard collection of scorched trunks. Smoke still rises out of the land. As we make our way through this, this nightmare landscape, we find dead animals, deer and pheasants burned alive, and the smell makes you sick in a hungry way. The streams are filled with dead trout. I do not know why they are dead, except for that. Perhaps the fire demanded it. I still dream of that fire chasing me. The logging men have sent doctors here to examine the smoldering trees. Apparently, they think that these corpses can be recovered for profit. At the very least, they must go or become fuel for the next fire. Some even talk of planting a whole new forest. I don't believe in them but I find that I want to. I want to believe that nothing this terrible is permanent, that I'll stop dreaming of fire, that there is a future for men like you and I, for us. I hope you will call on me when I return. Yours, S. DJ Asana, everyone. 
Thank you so much, TJ. And this uh, backing track that's going on right now that was playing over TJ's is another one by the very talented Brian Park. Thank you so much, Brian. Um, do we have a fade on that? Is it almost done? Let's just enjoy it. It's a very sexy track. It's a very sexy track. I really like it. There it goes. All right. Rad. Uh, Jade, do you have any questions for TJ? Yeah, TJ, uh, what inspired that story? Um, so when I was looking over the notes that Noah gave, one of the things that stuck out to me most was just the visuals of the after effects of the fire. Um, it was said that if you stood on the western edge of the burn and looked east, you would see nothing but blackened hills as far as you could see. And I... Uh, tried to imagine like what it would be like to live through an event like that and also to just have to come face to face with the aftermath. And um, I was really struck by that. So I decided to write a piece uh, from the perspective of someone who actually had to deal with that. Yeah, thank you so much. That was beautiful. Um, one thing that I've really been thinking about throughout this entire research process and um, is how loud it must have been. You know, the burn, how loud, and um, and that wall of fire 200 feet tall, how terrifying that must have been. So I'm, I'm really glad you touched on that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it is a terrifying thing to actually consider that people live through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and only claimed one human life. That's amazing. That is incredible that, that only one person died. Um, had you heard about the burn before? Oh, uh, no. Okay. <laughs> Right. Sorry. We're all getting education tonight. Yes. I'm um, very educated now. <laughs> Great. So, TJ, um, how can people find out more about you? Um, I have a website, which is my name, tjsena.com, where I post mostly about, like, if I get something published or not. And, Amazing. Um, I also am the theater reviewer for PQ Monthly, so if you Ooh. go online, you can read about that. Yes, I'm that TJ. Nice. <laughs> TJ, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, TJ. The 1945 burn caught the most media and public attention. Portland, Oregon's biggest city, had seen a population boom with over a quarter million Americans moving to the city due to the wartime economy. City folk traveling to the coast had to drive through the burn and see its ugliness up close. It became popular opinion that something had to be done to stop this cycle and reclaim the lost empire of timber. And so Oregon Governor Earl Snell appointed a citizens committee to find the solution. What they came back with was a plan to create the largest forestry rehabilitation program in American history. The goal was to turn the non-producing burn land into a 300,000-acre tree farm. Fast forward nearly 30 years, and after much deliberation, negotiation, and money-changing hands, the Tillamook Burn Country is officially dedicated by Governor Tom McCall as the new Tillamook State Forest. Forty years after the initial flame, the state had banded together to not give up on a land that had the potential to be fully renewed. In his remarks, McCall exclaims, Around us now, we see the result of our lending a helping hand to the natural process. More than a million snags are gone, and in their place is a new stand of Oregon's lifeblood. The trees will grow and suffer our harvest and grow again. The forest will again feed us. The promise had been timber forever. 
And after many years of a forest on fire, the promise looked to be finally made true. And the world is a tinderbox. And the world is a dying pine. Don't be afraid. The tears you cry Put out the spark Put out the fire And the world Is a tender box And the world Is a dying pine Don't be afraid Put out the spark, put out the fire, and the world is a tender box, and the world is a dying pine. Don't be afraid, the tears you Thank you so much for listening to this live recording of Our Fires. This show is created and produced by myself, Noah Dunham, Callie Giorita, Matt Harmon, Jade Hobbs, Ryan Soley, and Emily Wright. Sound engineering was done by Matt Harmon and Paul Seeley. Special thanks to Action Venture Theater for hosting, Doug Kerrigan for his video work, Brett Mustard for photography, and all of our special guests who you should run out right now, look up, and support. We want to thank Ron Atwood, Phil Peterson, and Rebecca Youngstrom for being sponsors and huge supporters of this work. And finally, we want to thank you, dear listener, for trying out something new. Hope you'll tune in next time. It's a tinderbox, and the world is a dying crime. Don't be afraid, the tears you cry, but I'll Put out the fire Put out the spark Put out the fire Put out the spark Put out the fire